Why is there something instead of nothing? I wonder how you would answer that question. You know, in the busyness of life, it can be difficult to sort of stop at times and ask some of those bigger questions, but I think it's a really important one. And so as I ask you right now, I wonder how you would answer that question. A friend of mine runs, uh, uh, manages some commercial property. One morning he turns up and he sees a broken window and so quickly has it repaired. While the office workers turned up that morning and they find filing cabinets open and drawers pulled open and, and broken glass on the floor, and, but no broken window. And you can imagine them trying to work out on the basis of what I see, what, what is going on? Where did this glass come from? What has happened? And I think it's a little bit similar for us in our world today. We, we look at the world around us and we're trying to figure out how did this all come to be? Why are the things the way they are? And for somebody with a pantheist worldview, they see everything as God, everything as divine, and so all of it has sort of existed in some way. Then you have the sort of atheist who says, I'm going to start from the point of view that I don't believe in a God, and so I'm going to trust things like science to try and understand the world around me. And when science doesn't have answers, I'm going to use that evidence to come up with theories beyond that. But one of the products of that is that you have to come to the conclusion that everything's just random chance. You know, why is there something where, uh, if there could, when there could be nothing? Chance. You know, everything, uh, everything has come about. There's no rhyme or reason other than that. But for a Christian, our view is fundamentally different. And that's what we're going to explore today and onwards through this series. Today we begin um, another one of our pillars series where we look at the sort of basic framework of what Christians have always believed. And, and uh, today our hope is to build a sort of basic framework around creation and next week around humanity and the week after around fall. And we're using that framework to try and help us as a church have a conversation around some of the big topics that are going on in our culture, things like uh, things like uh, climate and gender and sexuality and beginning and end of life issues. And so I want to suggest that this is a really great series for you to engage with if you're skeptical because you're going to go away from today and you're going to go away from this series with a much better understanding of what Christians actually believe. And of course, if you're exploring faith or new to faith, or maybe you're further on in the journey, but you've still had some lingering questions that are still going on, I think this is a really great uh, series for you to engage with. It's going to build that framework within which we can have some really great conversation. I can't promise you maybe heaps of answers, but hopefully we can begin the conversation together. And so here's the question I want to begin to answer today. Why is there something instead of nothing? If you've got a Bible, real easy, flip past the contents page and pass whatever notes were at the start get to page one we're in Genesis and it begins like this in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth now the earth was formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Why is there something instead of nothing? God doesn't leave us hanging. He answers it in the very first pages, the very first words of scripture. In the beginning, God 
And so in the very first words, we, we have affirmed for us that the universe had a beginning. Uh, it took centuries after this for science to confirm what the people of God have always known, that the universe had a beginning. Time, space, and matter came together in a moment, and everything went from there. And if there was a beginning, then there must be a beginner. In the beginning, God. I wonder what phrases that you remember being uh, repeated in your childhood, maybe by a parent or, or a teacher. My dad had a, had a couple of phrases. Um, uh, uh, one was, many a true word spoken in jest. And that was really because I was always joking, and I probably still am to some degree. The other thing for me was I was always going 100 miles an hour. There was just always so much to do. And my dad would say, more haste, less speed. And I'm like, I have no idea what haste is. I just got places to go and things to do, Dad. But you can tell what's important for somebody by the things they keep saying, by the things that they repeat. And God is no different. In the first 31 verses of the Bible, just little over one page, the word God, Elohim, appears 30 times. 30. The message is important and the message is clear. There is something instead of nothing because of him. In the beginning, God and so if I take you back to the office setting my, my friend was involved in, you know, the, the, the colleagues are all working out what's going on, but all confusion evaporates when my friend walks in and says, hey, I think there was a break-in, but I had the window fixed for you. See, all, all, all confusion goes at that moment. And I think in these pages of Scripture, the confusion can evaporate for us too because we realize God enters the scene. He says the, the reason things are the way they are is because of me. And I want to consider how that continues in, in, in the pages of Scripture that come after that because what we understand is that God created out of Nothing. Verse 16 of Colossians 1 says this, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, here we, we hear Jesus' involvement, the Son's involvement in creation. And we look at the whole of Scripture, we understand the Father, Son, and Spirit were all involved in these scenes. And, and the verses we've just read repeat the word all six times. This is trying to give the, a sense of the full expression of creation. There is nothing that has ever been created that that does not find its origin in God. He is self-existent. He relies on absolutely nothing. You want to say, where was God before creation? The answer is nowhere, everywhere. There was nowhere. When was God before creation? There was no when. He is eternal. There was no when. Time, space, and matter came together because of him. And the Christian faith therefore departs from the atheist because while we agree there was a beginning, we have come to a very clear conclusion about who that beginner is. And we also depart from the pantheist because we don't believe everything is God. We believe everything was created by God. And so he is separate from it, even though he is intimately involved within it. And so out of that, I want you to see three implications today. Number one, God is in charge. When you read Genesis 1 on from there, you find this repeated phrase, and God said, and it was so. And God said, 
and it was so. Things exist in the way they do because God created them to be that way. He created with power. He created with authority. And so he created with purpose. Things have purpose and meaning. And I think this is in line with what we intuitively know. You know, the way we look at the world the way we feel about one another, the way we love, the way we grieve. I think it tells us this place really isn't random. This place does have meaning. This place does have purpose. But if we remove God from the equation, all we're left with is something that must be the product of random chance. But if we put God into the equation, we realize, no, this place does have meaning. This does have purpose. And that is in line with what I think we sense at the very depths of our being. God is in charge. And therefore, there's meaning and purpose. The second thing I want you to see is that God is creative. Three times in this, um, creation is a really special word, and we find it three times in the opening uh, verses of Scripture. Created, created, created. It's a word that's only found in relation to God, either when he does something brand new or he moves something from imperfection to perfection. And that's what we see in Genesis 1. We see this earth that's formless and empty and dark. The original Hebrew readers, they they really didn't like darkness. And so they sort of shuddered when they heard those words. But the, what comes after that in God's creative work is he takes things that are formless and he brings them into form. We see things that are empty, suddenly filled and becoming abundant. We see what is dark becoming light. God's creative word moves things towards perfection. Our God is so creative. You know, oceans and waves with turquoise glinting off the sunlight and, and, and white foam over the top. They are a part of his imagination. You stare at mountains capped with snow. They are a part of his imagination. He imagined, he dreamed up the legs of an oct octopus, the neck of a giraffe, the, the speed of a cheetah. He created something beautiful as a reflection of his beauty. And I also want you to see not only those two things, but also that creation was good. Genesis not only explains what, why creation exists, but why it is the way it is. God created and it was good. And goodness here speaks not only of sort of beauty and goodness, but also moral perfection. There's a way things are meant to be. You know, things are beautiful in the way they're meant to be. There was an inherent goodness to our world. And, and the way the narrative of the Bible goes, it might be quite surprising. You know, now we understand that like some of the stars that we see that are just sort of tiny specks in the sky are actually like gigantic stars that just dwarf our solar system. And... Um, and yet what's surprising is they get like a tiny mention. They're barely the part of the backdrop, backdrop as, as the narrative of Scripture hones very, very quickly towards humanity. You know, stars take a, take a back seat. Humanity takes the spotlight. And we'll talk more about that next week. But for now, the reason it's important is because God created a good world and the focus comes on humanity in that world. God has created this place for us and it's a place within which we can thrive. And so what I want to understand out of this then is what should our response be? And there's three responses. Number one, I think our number one response should be worship. 
I love Queenstown. If you've ever been there, you'll know it's an incredible place. When you land there on the plane, you land at the airport right next to the Remarkables, these sort of mountain ranges. And every time I land there, I look at these mountains and I go, yeah, good name. They really, really are remarkable. And, and you go just a little bit further down and you'll find Lake Wakatipu, beautiful lake, and you'll find houses built around the edges of it. And I would imagine that people paid way more to live lakefront. And I want to ask why. You see, I think there's something about us that loves to be in awe of mountains, uh, agrees that lakes and oceans and rivers are just stunning. And so we'll pay more to have a building not only next to, but oriented so we can gaze at that lake. Yeah, the question is why, and I think the answer is, I think it's because we're worshippers. It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. I think we love to worship. We love to be amazed at a mountain. We love to stand in awe of a lake. We love to, to look at the way the sunrise reflects or the, or the sunset reflects on a lake. But the purpose of these things is not that they remain objects at which we're wowed at, but that that wow, that amazement, uh, causes us to look beyond that to the one who made them. When we're wowed at like amazing mountains, they should teach us to be wowed at God. When we're amazed at beautiful lakes, that we should, we should look beyond that and become amazed at God. Creation draws us into worship. Second thing is I think it brings us with it a sense of responsibility. True story, I was once on a roller coaster and uh, I am like mid-flight and suddenly I see this thing go across my eye line and I suddenly realise it was my phone. And I've been checking golf scores in the queue and I've been doing it all day and putting my phone back in my pocket. This time I accidentally put it in a different pocket on a roller coaster and this phone flies off and into the middle of nowhere. There was no way it was coming back. Now that is bad enough it was, if it was your phone, but guess what? It was a borrowed phone. <laughs> It wasn't actually mine. So what's worse than losing a phone was that I was going to have to go to that person and explain to them what had happened to their phone. Psalm 24 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The world belongs to God. He knows how life is lived best within the world that he has made. And this has to have an impact on how we engage with some of the bigger topics in our world. We cannot look at, say, beginning of life issues or end of life issues, which aren't really issues. They affect real people, and I get that. But we can't begin to explore questions like that until we understand where we're from. And one of the pillars I want to put in place as we begin this series is this world is God's. And so we can't have that conversation conversation without reference to the fact that this world is his and we're responsible for how we live within it. We're responsible to him. Finally, the third thing I want you to see, the third, third sort of implication is, is faith. Hebrews 11.3 puts it this way, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. You know, clearly what we believe about creation is by faith. None of us was there. We have to take God at his word here. Just like our office workers, you know, when, when, with the broken glass, they could have looked for the evidence and they could have gone, right, broken glass, looks like there's been a break-in. So sure, there's no broken window, but maybe, just maybe, somebody's already fixed the window. See, they look at the evidence and then they take a step of faith. 
Now, I realize when it comes to our world that some of you may be unnerved. Even if you're a Christian, you're unnerved at this concept of faith and, and, and that, we would, that we would base our belief on faith and not on the evidence. But I want you to see a couple of things that have helped me here. Number one, the world we see speaks of intelligent design. Okay, we know that time, space, and matter came together at a given moment. But, what, but when we explore that, what we understand is there were certain parameters that had to be in place to like an infinitely small level of uh, precision in order for the universe to exist at all. And so you've got to begin to ask if those things had to be preset before creation, before like that moment, then who was it who set those things in place? If not God, you've got to answer questions like that. I think the world we see around us speaks of intelligent design. But also, I think it's important for us to understand that every single worldview requires faith. Science cannot prove the existence of God, and it cannot disprove it either. You can't prove a multiverse as an answer to that level of probability around the world. You have to look at the evidence and take a step of faith. And there's a book, um, I'd recommend it to you. It's called In Six Days, and it's a collection of essays by, by various scientists. And what I really love um, is this account by Walter Veith. He was a professor and a, and a department chair in zoology, and he writes this. The evidence for evolution is based largely on the fossil record and interspecific as well as intraspecific genetic, biochemical, and morphological homologies. In addition, geological interpretation and radiometric dating provide the rationale for the long ages required for the evolutionary events to have taken place. However, each of these parameters is open to alternative explanations, which are, in my opinion, equally plausible and also happen to be in harmony with the biblical account. Further down, he says this, in my own life, I've been confronted with this dilemma and have become convinced that the alternative view of origin by design is worthy of support. For most of my academic career, I was a committed evolutionist and presented the theory of evolution to my students as an established fact. My university training and subsequent scientific endeavors have exposed me, to exclu uh, me exclusively to the evolutionary paradigm, and this has molded my thinking. It may well be asked, why the change of heart? In my religious experience, I came to accept the Word of God as the most trustworthy book I have ever read. Veith's point is that all worldviews require a step of faith. He had a previous way of looking at the world. He looked at the evidence and then he acknowledges he had to fill in the gaps. He had to take a step of faith. And the evidence hasn't changed in his new worldview. He's just come to trust that God's word best describes that step of faith you have to take on the basis of the evidence. We are all people of faith. But if I'm honest, can, my, my belief, my faith doesn't begin with in the beginning God. My faith starts with Jesus. I've read the eyewitness accounts. I've looked at how they describe his life and his death and his resurrection. And this is my starting point. You see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then what he said shouldn't be held in any better regard than anybody else who's been around the world and died. But if he did rise from the dead, then we better pay really close attention to what he said. And he affirms creation and not only that, he is the one that spoke those very first words, let there be light. 
Why is there something instead of nothing? The answer to that question requires a step of faith. And Christians have always believed that the answer to that question is God and the resulting world is his and we are responsible for how we live within it. We believe not simply because it accords with the world that we see around us or what we sense maybe at the core of our being. We believe it also on the basis of a risen saviour. So that's part one of Origins, creation. Next week, we look at humanity. The week after fall, and it goes on from there. I do hope you'll join us for the rest of this series. But right now, let me pray for us as we close. God, I love those words. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This world was created with meaning and purpose. This world was created good as a place within which we can thrive. I pray for us today that though we have taken a step of faith, I pray that you'd, you'd, that you'd confirm that at the core of our being, that that step of faith we've taken to believe in you would, 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 um, would deepen and would grow and you'd help us to, to live life in line with it and also help us to grapple with some of the bigger issues going on in our culture in line with it too. I pray for people exploring faith today or maybe skeptical today. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes to the reality of you, that maybe when they see a lake, when they see a mountain, Lord God, that it would lead them not just to stand in awe of those things in and of themselves, but cause us to lift our eyes and say, you are good and you are God and you are magnificent in what you've created. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. Amen.